I'm awake now. So in 1940, this man, along with a few others, his name is Clarence Jordan. He's probably best known for the translation of the New Testament called the Cotton Patch New Testament. Clarence Jordan founded, and some others founded, uh, Koinonia Farm in America's Georgia. It was an interracial farming community built on Christian principles. And to have anything interracial at that time in our history in the South, as you can imagine, was a bit of a problem. So much so that 14 years later, 1954, the Ku Klux Klan raided the farm and burned every building on the property to the ground except for Clarence Jordan's home. And as you probably know, a lot of the members of the Klan were men from the community who would wear hoods to conceal their identity out of cowardice and hatred and so forth. But that night, when, when the raid was going on, Clarence Jordan recognized the voice of one of the Klansmen. Oh, I'll be able to see you all. Hi, Vicki. Yeah. And it was the voice of a local newspaper reporter. The next day, that same reporter came to the farm. He went looking for Clarence Jordan, and Clarence was out in the fields planting seeds. The night before, every building has been burned down except for his home, and he's in the field planting seeds. He's back at it. So finally, the reporter finds him, and he says, I heard about the awful tragedy last night. I'm sorry, I have to do it with that accent. (laughs) I heard about the awful tragedy last night, and I came out to do a story on the closing of your farm. And Clarence Jordan ignored him, kept hoeing and planting. and The reporter insisted, kept trying, kept prodding. Finally, out of exasperation, the reporter just said, Look! You got two PhDs, you put 14 years of your life into this farm, and now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? With that, Clarence Jordan stopped hoeing, turned and looked at the reporter and said, You just don't get it. You don't understand us Christians. What we are about is not success. We are about faithfulness. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. And in his case, being faithful was costly and and painful. Clarence Jordan and the Koinonia farm he founded faithfully carried their crosses and denied themselves, even when it did not look like success. Why were they able to do so? I would suggest that it was because they knew a better way to live in the world, and they knew a better world that was promised them at the end of this journey. And I would suggest, as the writer to the book of Hebrews puts it when he describes Jesus, that they endured the cross, that they scorned its shame for the joy set before them. And so the good news we're going to celebrate in this morning's passage is simply this. The way of the cross leads to the glory of resurrection. The way of the cross leads to the glory of resurrection. It was true for Jesus, it's true for us. But before we can truly get there, Mark and Jesus have to define for us what exactly the way of the cross is. So early on in our passage, Jesus and the disciples are making their way around the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and that's important. We'll tell you why in a minute. And Jesus asks them who they think he is, and they throw some answers, who the people think he is, and they throw some answers back at him. Elijah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And so Peter gets it right, which if you know Peter, he doesn't always get it right, but he gets it right here. 
So much so that Jesus has to tell him, like he's told so many other people throughout the Gospel of Mark, that he's not to breathe a word of this to anyone else. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. The Christ is the Greek word, comes from the Greek word that means Messiah. The anointed one, the king. And Peter makes this announcement in a very dangerous place. Caesarea Philippi. The word Caesarea means Caesar. Caesar's city of Philippi. There was in that region a prominent temple to Rome's newest pagan god, Caesar, the emperor himself. So to claim that Jesus was king in that neck of the woods was a challenge to Rome. A dangerous, potentially treasonous statement. No wonder Jesus wanted Peter to keep it quiet. And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter does not fully understand who the Messiah is or why he has come. No one did, really, to be fair to Peter. For one thing, Peter's understanding and pretty much everyone else's understanding of the Messiah at that time did not include a suffering Messiah. It certainly didn't include a dying Messiah. I think Peter is so caught up in stumbling over this part, this idea of a dying and suffering Messiah, that he totally misses the part about resurrection. That all this suffering will eventually lead to the glory of the resurrection. You see, for Jesus, and we'll see in a moment for all of us too, for Jesus, down is the new up, and death is the new life. Defeat is the new victory, and faithfulness is the new success. Peter may be the spokesperson here, as he often is, but everyone who looked forward to the coming of Messiah was looking for the same things. But down is the new up. And now Jesus decides it's time to teach them about these things, so he gives them a new teaching, and we see this In the way Mark begins, verse 3, Jesus began to teach them. He began. The indication here is this is a new teaching, one they've not heard before, perhaps one they weren't ready to hear before. The Son of Man must suffer because human sin is real, human rebellion against God is real, human woundedness and pain are real, and it is no small thing to deal with these realities, even for the Christ. Christ must suffer because of the depth of the alienation between humanity and God. But that's not all. The the word must here stays enforced throughout the rest of the sentence. Not only must Jesus suffer many things, he must also be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must also be killed, and he must also be raised to new life three days later. All of these things must happen, because when God comes to us in the flesh, We are so broken, we are so wounded, we are so far removed from the concerns of God by our sin and our selfishness and our rebellion that we attack the very one who reveals God to us and the love of God to us. And these things must also happen because this is the way God will accomplish his purposes in Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross and down is the new up. Now, of course, the cross and death of Jesus are not the end of the story. For not only must Jesus suffer and die, but he must also rise again. 
The way of the cross leads to the glory of the resurrection. By rising again, Jesus will prove what his death on the cross has accomplished for us. He will receive the divine stamp of approval on the third day, Easter Sunday. Jesus then goes on to tell his first disciples and us that like him, we must suffer many things and be rejected. Like him, we must be prepared to suffer and die. But now he wants not only his disciples to know this, he wants everyone everyone to know it. So then he called the crowd, they called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and then he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you and I truly have the concerns of God as our chief concerns, it will cost us. Before we can get to the resurrection, we must go the way of the cross. On another occasion, the man I introduced you to, Clarence Jordan, was getting a red carpet tour of a church somewhere in the country, a well-off church, a well-funded church, an expensive church building. And the minister was taking Clarence around the building and showing him all the expensive stuff, the imported pews, the luxurious decor. And when they had finished the tour, they stepped out into the parking lot and the sun was going down and a big spotlight was shining on the cross on top of the steeple. And the minister beamed proudly and pointed to the steeple and said, that cross alone costs us $10,000. And Clarence Jordan said, you got cheated. Times were when Christians could get them for free. (laughs) Times were, to put it in Jesus' words in our passage, when followers of Jesus had to carry their own crosses. And let's be honest, that's not how, I don't know, some of us, many of us, most of us, that's not how, what we signed up for, is it? We, we were told about inner peace. We were told about freedom. We were told about the love of God. We were told about forgiveness. We were told about the abundant life. And all of that is true. All of that is true. But how do cross-carrying and abundant life go together? In this day and age, in this place in which you and I live, in this society, at this time in history, It can be all too easy to forget that the one we name as Savior and Master and Lord and Teacher and King, that one taught from the very beginning that to follow Him was to take up our crosses, to carry them, and to deny ourselves. The truth is, in some sense, abundant life and the taking up of our crosses are the same thing. Abundant life and self-denial are the same thing. The word for that would be discipleship. Discipleship. You know, with all the the money and the advertising and the angst that goes into the celebration known to us as Valentine's Day, which we celebrated a couple of days ago, we have forgotten or possibly even buried the history of the man after whom this day is named. Valentinus, an Italian bishop in Rome in the 3rd century, or Valentine, St. Valentine as we call him. He was known for preaching the gospel, for winning people to the Christian faith. He was known for caring for Christians who were persecuted during that time. 
And in 269 AD, because he had tried to win the emperor Claudius to Christ, he was imprisoned, he was tortured, and he was beheaded. Try finding that on a Valentine's Day card next year. Not a popular seller, I'm thinking. Valentine is one who was sent the way of the cross. He carried his cross. He denied himself, and it cost him his life. Don't mean to put a damper on your Valentine's Day celebrations. In chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, then, Jesus makes a promise that may sound strange to us. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Why, why does Jesus say this? What does it mean they won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power? That, that hasn't happened yet. At least the way we might understand it. This seems or could seem to us like a prediction of Jesus that, that, that did not come true. But Jesus had just given them the hard truth about suffering and self-denial and taking up their crosses. And after hearing that, they could well think, well, it's all over then, isn't it? We're going to die. He's just told them they're going to have to lose their lives in order to save them. So now he adds a caveat, a little encouragement. Some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom coming with power. He may be referring to the transfiguration, which is going to happen shortly here in the next few verses, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. He may be referring to the resurrection. Both of those are places where the kingdom comes with power in a sense. It may be both of those. We don't completely know what he's referring to. But both of those things together, it all points to a bigger and better story concerning the things of God, the, the glory of God, the coming of God's kingdom. And so we read, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with them and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Perhaps many, most of us, have heard that Moses and Elijah here represent the law and the prophets. I have even taught that myself, and I think there is something to it. But if we were to talk to our Jewish friends, Jewish scholars on these things, we would discover a deeper level, another layer here. What it meant for Moses and Elijah to be there. There was a belief that both Moses and Elijah would appear again as signs of the end of the age when that time comes. They would appear to testify that this age is ending and that the new age is coming. They were what we call eschatological figures, which is fun to say. Eschatological figures. Eschatology is the study of last things. Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus is a way of saying that what is happening here in this transfiguration speaks of the end. It speaks of the end of this age and the coming of the new age. It speaks of the renewal of all things. It speaks of the, the kingdom of God coming with power just as Jesus promised. And then now as we get to the end of our passage, we see some things that tie it all together. 
In the first place, the passage is bookended by declarations about who Jesus is. Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, at the beginning of the passage. And God identifies Jesus as his son at the end of the passage. And in the middle, we have all this talk of suffering and dying and sacrifice, even as we're also promised resurrection in the kingdom of God, coming with power. Somehow, all of this is related, just as the promise of abundant life and the call to take up our crosses and lose our lives are also related. Second, poor Peter, again, gets something wrong on both ends of the passage. In the first part, after he has correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, he incorrectly thinks that from that point on, everything is up and to the right on the quarterly growth charts. Right? Attendance is up, offering is up, miracles are up. It's all good. And if Jesus is the Messiah, what else could he think? The crowds are going to grow, influence is going to grow, and eventually Jesus will bring the kingdom as Peter and his friends understood that kingdom to be. But Peter gets it wrong. He doesn't know that down is the new up. He doesn't know that the way of the cross comes first. He doesn't know that faithfulness is the new success. Furthermore, what what Peter gets wrong at the beginning is pretty much the same thing he gets wrong at the end, but from a different angle, different point of view. At the beginning, Peter stands in the way of Jesus' suffering and death. He thinks he's doing him a favor here. And at the end, he wants to stay on the mountaintop and sit in the glory of the end times when God's victory in the cosmos will be final and full. And in both cases, Peter wants to skip over and avoid all the unpleasant parts of discipleship, the carrying of the cross, the laying down of his own life, the death to self. And I don't blame him. I'd like to skip over all that unpleasantness too. Maybe you would as well. But that's not the way it works. Before we can get to the glory of the resurrection, we must walk the way of the cross. That is not to say that if in your life things are going up and to the right, if things are going well for you, that you've done something wrong. Not at all. That's not to say that you must not be following Jesus if life is going well. Not at all. It is to say that if things are going well, if things are going up and to the right for you, Give thanks, rejoice, celebrate it, but don't cling too tightly to it. And don't think that just because things are going well, they will always go well. Because for the time being, we are all walking the way of the cross, the way of faithful self-denial. The flip side is also true. If things are not going well, if sacrifice and suffering and death to self are the way of things for you right now, it doesn't mean that you're doing everything right. Sometimes we can do stupid things that bring these things upon us, right? Nor does it mean that things are always going to be difficult and painful. One day the kingdom of God will come in power, and by the grace of God, even now, we can get hints of that kingdom reality popping up in our lives like the vision of the transfiguration that Peter, James, and John got on the mountaintop. What we call mountaintop experiences, and this passage is one of the reasons we call them that. Even in the midst of all this talk of crosses and sacrifice and dying, there are hints, there are 
places, there are visions of where the true nature of the kingdom and where things are headed pop up for us and encourage us. There, there are still going to be painful and challenging and difficult things to come for these disciples in the story, but they, that day they got a taste of the kingdom to help them endure, to help them finish the race. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, In light of the fact that we are surrounded by so many faithful witnesses, sisters and brothers in Christ who have gone before us, some of who have have given their lives, and they too never experienced the fullness of everything God was promising them, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, whenever we talk of self-denial, I think it's important to say something. It's important to, to qualify something. For some of us, probably sitting in this room here today, Talk of self-denial is not helpful because we already deny ourselves in very unhealthy ways. For some of us, talk of self-denial is not always helpful because we already deny ourselves in unhealthy ways. Our poor self-image, the abuse we've suffered, our low self-esteem, all of this and other things can lead us to deny our basic needs to make ourselves into a doormat of sorts. To suffer abuse when we need not suffer the abuse. That's not what this means. Self-denial. Jesus is here dealing in context with people who only want to talk about success and power and overthrowing the Roman government and thus derailing the plan of God. This This is not a command that we are not to take care of ourselves or that we are never to take action to protect ourselves. That's not what this is. It is a warning that following Jesus is sometimes difficult and messy and costly and that success in following Jesus is not always going to look successful the way the world counts success. We do not walk this journey because we think less of ourselves or that we're unworthy. We walk this journey because we think enough of ourselves to know that God loves us, that we have infinite worth and immense value And that he has something better for us in the age to come and even in this life. How do we respond to the promise of the good news that this way of the cross leads to and will give way to the glory of the resurrection? It's probably many things we could say, but for this morning what I'm going to say is very simple. Not easy, but very simple. We do what Hebrews 12 tells us. We stay on the path, the way of the cross, and we fix our eyes on Jesus. There are plenty of other things you could be looking at, but we fix our eyes on Jesus. We follow his example. We, we try to picture the joy that is set before us, and we endure. We carry our crosses, and we deny ourselves in the best possible sense of that phrase. We scorn the shame that we may find heaped on us when we are unsuccessful, when we are mistreated, when we are ignored, so that we may endure so that we may one day sit down near the throne of God when his kingdom comes in power. How do we do so? Again, there are probably lots of ways, but I say we engage in the Gospels, the four books at the beginning of our New Testament. We read them, 
We reflect them. We pray them. We memorize parts of them, maybe. I, I know one person who has chosen to read through all four Gospels every month in 2020. Reading through all four Gospels every month in 2020. You can do that, she says, if you read three chapters a day. You'll have read through each Gospel 12 times by the end of the year. Three chapters, that's not that much. But if it is, my poor math skills tell me that you could do it uh, one chapter a day in three months. That gives you four times through the Gospels in a year. That's the extent of my math ability right there. You don't have to do three chapters. Just do one chapter a day. Spend some time in the gospel. Obviously, you need to read thoughtfully. You need to read prayerfully. But I believe that if we do these kinds of things, friends, we will be transformed slowly over the long haul. It doesn't have to happen all at once. I mean, let's face it. To live lives that are surrendered to Christ, that are submitted to Christ, takes a lifetime. It's not going to happen in a day a week or a month or a year. It takes a lifetime. And it's never too late to start. And once again, if you and I do this, if we fix our eyes on Jesus in the Gospels, in prayer, in reflection, in study, and in our lives together, we will be transformed and we will be empowered to take up our crosses, to deny ourselves, and to follow Jesus more faithfully. Now, I don't know if this is true for you, but this is true for me. There are some things that maybe I knew uh, on, some, on some level before, but it's, it's become fresh to me all over again. And we all face situations in life that are difficult for us, whether it's a relationship or kids that are challenging or finances or a job. I don't, I don't know what it might be for you. We all face those things, and we all, as I do, pray that God would change those things, right? Fix this, God. This is a mess. I can't do this anymore. And it's okay to do that, you bring whatever request you need to bring to God. It's okay to do that. And I believe God is working uh, to, to change those things that need to be changed all the time. However, even as we pray that, we should also pray about the one thing that we have a little more control over. And that is, God, if you can't change this, because sometimes God can't, and I'll talk about that in just a second, if it's not possible to change this situation, change me. Change me so that I can endure, so that I can walk this path faithfully, that I can walk the way of the cross. Change me so that I can do it well. See, because when we're praying for God to change things in our lives, our family, whatever, I don't know, say, say it's a fairly complicated thing and you want God to change it, and maybe for that to change in your life, 15 people have to be affected. Maybe the whole economy has to be affected, I don't know. But those 15 people have a will, and they can resist the Holy Spirit. God may be doing everything he can to convince that person, this person, that person to change the way they're doing something that's affecting your life, but they can resist that. And if they don't know Jesus at all, they are resisting that. But by you yielding your life to God and saying, change me, keep praying for other things to change. I'm not saying you stop that. Change me so that I can walk this way. Well, that's a little easier in the sense that you have already submitted to God. You're already wanting to listen to God, and maybe God in that process can enable you to walk the way of the cross more faithfully, to endure that pain and suffering for the joy that is set before you, and to do it well, to live and walk faithfully, even if you can't always walk successfully. And I believe that when we do that, when we enter into that 
transformed and ever-transforming kind of life. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, I believe that Jesus in us and through us is very attractive to the people who are in our lives. They may not know that's what it is, but they are starving for him. And when they see him in us and through us, they will want to be with us. They will want to know and follow him too, if they're open. Some will want to run. But I think there are people who are starving who will want to know and follow Jesus. So let us not strive to be successful. Let us commit ourselves, our resources, all that we have to be faithful instead. To endure the cross, to scorn its shame for the joy that is set before us in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we give thanks this day for all the saints who have gone before us, the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us this morning, people we have known, people we have read about, people we have seen movies about, Lord, people like Clarence Jordan, people like St. Valentine, and so many others, Lord. And most of all, Lord, we give you thanks 